Okay, welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so honored to welcome Mr. Louis Sohoyas. How are you today, sir? Very good, thank you. Excellent. Well, everyone should know you as the director of Game Changers, which is the new incredible plant-based um, documentary that's out. But before we get to that, I'd love to hear your history because I've been doing some research on you, and I'm utterly fascinated as I have a child that's also studying film and wants to make documentaries. So if we could just dive into how did you get into photography that led you to film? Oh boy. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> you tell the short version. Um, I mean, I loved, uh, you know, I come from a working class family in Iowa and, you know, I always thought that I'd have to like work very hard to make a living like with manual labor. And, but I loved art. I love photography. And um, when I was in high school, I took, a, I took a photography course and there was a, somebody from the local newspaper that came to talk and, you know, it started to dawn on me, man, this guy gets paid for that. And I think, you know, like a lot of people my age, they were, you know, they loved National Geographic magazine, which at the time was, I think the, you know, probably, you know, one of the, the top one or two or possibly three subscription magazines in the world back then. Wow. And um, I wanted to work for them for my whole life. The only problem was that they hadn't hired a new photographer in like about 11 years. But I, I got a summer job working with them. And um, one of the layout people that was working there told me, he said, listen, there's, you know, 30,000 working photographers in New York. Every, any one of them is good enough to work for the magazine. What you need to do is come up with your own ideas. Mm. And uh, uh, we came up with an idea almost as a joke because geographic, you know, always has, you know, the way that they look at the world or they, they looked at the world at that time, this is back in about 1980 was, you know, um, incredibly optimistic. You know, they make like Uganda, which was riddled with, you know, war and AIDS look like a great place to live. And we had sort of, you know, we would make up our own stories like, you know, our friend, the maggot life goes on inside a corpse or bulldozer across America. <laughs> and, uh, we were just sort of we were just riffing on uh, there was a photographer back then by the name of Fred Ward who did these uh, commodity stories like gold silver platinum and he said oh, let's do one on garbage and this guy I was talking with said well you know we could do like you know uh, garbage art and I said boy I just remember reading about these people up in Northern California that do you know art from found objects and. I said, well, you could do like, you know, Geographic does like people look, you know, mining through the garbage. And he says, well, I just read about this garbologist from the University of Tucson that, you know, <laughs> goes through garbage, you know, looking like with the archaeological class. And I wrote it up almost. It wasn't a joke. I mean, to me, it was really serious because I, you know, a lot of photographers wow. of my generation wanted to um, use the magazine to travel. And I certainly did, but I wanted to do something different. And back then there was only one mandatory recycling program in all of America. And I just saw that as a, I had an environmental bent. So I thought, well, let's make a, you know, let's call uh, the, the working title of that project. I called it urban ore. And hmm. um, so that became a cover story. They, they, they liked this, the idea they hired me, became the first photographer, the order they, they hired in uh, over a decade. And it became a cover story in about, I don't know, 30 some pages. But it was the first way a lot of people really started to get the idea of recycling in America. And I realized that, now this, this part is interesting to me, you know, and I think it's really important that, uh, I'm not saying it sparked the environmental movement for recycling, but it certainly became part of that chorus to see that cover story of, you know, everybody's, you know, favorite magazine mm -hmm. to be featuring garbage on their cover. And, um, 
you know, there's some really good science that shows that to create social change, you need 10% of the population to be 100% committed to an idea. And that's then social revolutions are unstoppable. You know, that's mm -hmm. the tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I called up the lead author on that paper and I said, well, what's with 10%? Why not 6% or 7% or 17? And he's, he sent me back the paper and in it was like three pages of like algorithms and graphs and, and you know, to me, just uh, uh, arithmetic uh, gibberish. And I said, can you give it to me in a lay language? Lay language? He said, yeah. He said, it's like if you're trying to create steam, you'll never be able to do it unless you get water to a boiling point. He said 10% of the population, 100% committed to an idea is the boiling point of, for the spread of social ideas. And with Geographic, with that article, you know, about 11 million people saw the magazine, or sorry, got the magazine, another four people saw each magazine. So, you know, maybe 15, 18% of America saw the, that issue. And that's, that starts to, to heat this up, this idea. And, you know, what they say in the movie business that somebody needs to hear about an idea six or seven times before it becomes part of their psyche. And I feel like everything that we do, whether it's in stills or films, or if, you, if you're doing this kind of work, it's about turning up humanity to the boiling point so that we can uh, use this very, very powerful medium to spread social ideas for good. You know, um, that was, so that was, you know, how I, I got involved in photography. Then um, back in, the, you know, 1993, I was uh, asked to do a story for National Geographic on the information revolution. This is, I mean, this is like pre-internet. And the, one of the guys that actually helped start the internet, the first commercial internet browser was the guy by the name of Jim Clark. He was the kind of the Steve Jobs of my generation, you know, the, he had uh, started Silicon Graphics. He was uh, an incredible man and I wanted to photograph him really badly for this, for the information revolution story for National Geographic, but he was like, he couldn't be bothered. Uh, but he was an amazing guy. When he was in, in college, he uh, helped send, you know, man to the moon when JFK called to put Americans on the moon by the end of the decade. He was a college student working at Boeing with a scientists were designing the engines and his job was you know to take these cards and funnel them to the computer and he says that's never going to happen you know it's just, the, the, the bottleneck is stops at me so he he got permission from his boss to get a bigger computer speed it up by 20 fold and he made that happen so that's just i'm setting up jim because he's an important character in my life <laughs> um so i couldn't so then he started when he went to start teaching at stanford he built the 3d graphics engine the first way oh, you could wow. You could uh, design games and do CAD CAM in three dimensions. The day he stopped that, he started Netscape, the first commercial internet browser. He uh, uh, started WebMD, um, and uh, that's when I filmed him. I was actually filmed him about, I know, I guess you fast forward about 10 years. I'm working for Fortune, Fortune magazine at that point. And he was building a boat with the world's tallest mast in over in Holland. And I flew over to meet him finally. and. Uh, we were, you know, having drinks at a at a restaurant there, and he says uh, he was starting a new new billion dollar company called Shutterfly. And he said, "Would you teach me how to how to be a good photographer?" And I said, "Jim, I'll teach you how to be a great one if you teach me how to be a billionaire." <laughs> and he would he would actually you know, pick me up on his jet over in Jeffco, and we would fly around the world taking pictures. We did this for. Wow. You know, a good part of, you know, almost 10 years. He built the best underwater camera in the world because a lot of what we were doing back then was underwater photography. And 
I really looked up to Jim. He was my best friend. And, um, you know, we were diving all over the world. He said, Louis, I'll, I want to take you to the best place I've ever been for diving. And we, you know, we picked me up. We flew to Papua New Guinea. We sailed for about a day and a half and we dove on the coordinates uh, of the lat, that spot that was supposed to be the best. And he had, you know, he had came up and he, he was crying. He said, it, it was just rubble. The whole, you know, that whole area just turned to rubble. We don't know what it was with dynamite fishing or something. It was, but it was obviously a catastrophe. It was just all gone. And we had noticed that every time we came back to a dive, a dive spot, you know, it was our third time in the Galapagos. Every, you, know, you know, we didn't have a baseline except in our memory, but you, you, we always remembered we'd come back the same time of year. We'll say, let's go back to this area. And it was always worse. You know, it wasn't getting better. And we were, there's a third time in the Galapagos and we saw fishermen illegally long lining in a marine sanctuary. And Jim said to me, somebody should do something about this. And I said, how about you and I? And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, we'll use your money in my eye and we'll make films. And um, that's how we started the Oceanic Preservation Society. Mm. And the first film we did was called The Cove and The Cove, uh, uh, became the most winning documentary in history. Won, I don't know, about a hundred awards from Sundance to the Academy Award. And you know that film's about dolphin hunting in Japan. And at that time, they were killing about twenty-three thousand dolphins and porpoises every year in Japan for human consumption. A lot of it was being force-fed to school children. They were trying to get a, a program where they were getting, you know, kids, um, you know, actual, uh, you know, acclimated to eating dolphin meat for school lunch programs. And we have to set this up a little bit. You know, all the dolphin meat that's ever been tested in Japan for the last 25 years has been shown to be toxic, anywhere from five to 5,000 times more mercury than allowed if it was a fish. Of course, it's a mammal. So that's how they got around this loophole. So these, you know, it was, they, there was, and they were working on spreading it all over Japan. And um, so we did this film and, um, you know, it, it started to get a lot of attention. And, um, like I said, won a lot of awards, but the most important thing about that film is that, you know, dolphin hunting, I think for the last, dolphin and porpoise hunting for the last statistics I, I remember, it's like they killed about 1,610. Oh, and wow. uh, that's so it's like a 97% drop in dolphin deaths. So the, you know, films, you know, and it wasn't, it was the activism around the film and there's other, other events that went on, but, you know, I can see that film is really powerful. You know, mm -hmm. you, you can, you know, I call it a weapon of mass construction. You, you drop a bomb, you kill people, you make a film, you create allies. It's the opposite. Hmm. And now there's Japanese people in Japan have picked up the mantle and they're now protesting what's going on over this because it, it is still happening, just a fraction of it left. But, um, you know, people are still working on it. So, you know, we're not making, you know, I run a, or, this nonprofit organization, OPS. It, uh, you know, we're really starting movements more than we're making movies. Movies are just the way that we, one of the ways that we, uh, try to create social change. The mm. second film we did, I guess I'll just give you a little bit of a background, is that, 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 that I did a film called Racing Extinction, uh, which is about the worldwide extinction crisis. And I remember this was 10 years ago, people hadn't heard of it. And I thought, well, this is the, the biggest story in the world that we're going through a mass extinction. I did four stories uh, for on extinction for National Geographic magazine. I wrote a book about dinosaurs of the midlife of the planet, the Mesozoic. And so this is always on my mind. And, um, Michael Novacek, when we were looking for dinosaurs in the Gobies, you know, I was like, man, what happened to all these dinosaurs? Because they were laid out, you know, usually out, out west you see dinosaurs and they're, you know, you might find part of a leg or a bone, you know, they're, they're very rarely 
all in situ, you know, laid out, you know, tip of the nose to the tip of the tail. But in this area of Mongolia and the, the flaming cliffs, you saw them, you know, whole dinosaurs laid out. I said, what happened? You know, and they, they didn't know exactly know. But he says, he said to me, you know, we're going through a mass extinction right now. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, oh, yeah, you know, there's, you know, four major drivers of extinction, habitat uh, destruction, pollution, invasive species, and overconsumption. Um, and that's when I decided to do this, this film on, you know, the, this, what they call it, the Anthropocene, or the uh, Anthropocene, the sixth mass extinction on the planet. And we did this film for Discovery. I think 36 million people saw it in 220 countries and territories on the first day. We did these massive projection events that, you know, maybe some of your readers remember we projected endangered species on the Empire State Building. And, uh, you know, I remember the, the producers over at Discovery said, you know, at that, that point they had licensed the film. They said, well, we don't really need that for the ending. You already have a good ending. Uh, you know, in August in New York, projections on the Empire State Building, people, you know, all the important people are going to be in vacation at the Hamptons or over in, in Europe. And uh, the press won't be able to show up because it's still dark late and that would be overtime on a Saturday night. It'll be a non-event. Well, we had 939 million media views by Thursday. Uh, it was the top trending story on Facebook and Twitter for four days worldwide. And there was, we stopped Fifth Avenue like it was the Easter parade. It was just like, <laughs> I remember my, we, we had rented out the top of a bar on 28th Street overlooking the Empire State Building. My son had come up and said, dad, there's people out in the street. I thought he meant people on the street waiting to get into the bar. Because it was, and, it, and then he said, well, look over the side. And Fifth Avenue was like, looked like the Easter parade, people looking up at this event. And we thought we couldn't get any more attention on this subject than that. And then the Pope called and he wanted us, and then he, he wanted us to project endangered species on the Vatican during COP21, uh, while world, world leaders were deciding the, the fate of humanity. Right. And, you know, remind him, you know, because uh, Pope Francis is named after uh, you know, St. Francis, the patron saint of animals. Mm -hmm. So that event, we had 4.4 billion media views. I think 2.25 million people saw it live in St. Peter's Square. Um, 600 media was there. And, you know, I like to think that we had a little bit of a handle, a little bit of a um, an influence sparking people to what was going on. And we certainly got up close to that 10% number. And I think what you're starting to see now is, you know, some of the after effects of what a lot of people were doing is to get, you know, wake up the people in the world that, you know, climate change isn't just about, you know, polar bears and rising rivers. Everything's going to be affected by this. Right. Then, <laughs> and then, <laughs> then, and then, uh, you know, but when we're doing that film, you know, you look at these drivers, the, the, the biggest driver, this kind of leads, leads us up to what we're talking about, I hope, um, is that when you look at the, the major driver of mass extinctions is habitat destruction. And that's for raising the animals that we're going to eat. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you look at, I think it's like three quarters of available land that we've used in the, in the world is used for, agri you know, for raising animals or animal feed for the animals that we're going to eat. And, um, uh, and then these two producers had, had been working on uh, this film, you know, The Game Changers, and um, they, you know, they were kind of, they were amateurs. They'd never done a film before. Not like I had this great experience, but um, they uh, they said, "Would you help us on this film?" And I started to think, "Oh, jeez, you know, I'm so busy, but you know, this is actionable. You know, like 
you know, when people want to know is that there's something that they can do to mitigate a mass extinction, we need to change what's on their plate before we can, you know, change the world, you know, because uh, food is at the nexus of, you know, not just habitat destruction, it's the, you know, the, the raising of animals for human consumption, the greenhouse gases are cause, causes more greenhouse gases than all the direct emissions from the entire transportation sector, like 14 and a half percent. You know, if you come at it from, you know, animal rights, if you care about animals, the average person in America eats about 10,000 animals in their lifetime. You know, you think if you get somebody that's going to live to 80, you get them at 40 years old, you become a vegan, you save 5,000 animals. Uh, if you're interested in climate change, it's three and a half tons per year. Uh, one of our biggest coming looming issues is fresh water. Uh, the, yeah. the difference between a vegan and a, and a meat eater is you save 401,000 gallons of water a year. Um, you know, 9,000 square feet plus of, you know, uh, wild land that doesn't have to be turned over to, to, to raise food for animals. And that's why the, the rainforests of Amazon are getting wiped out. It's for, because of, it's, it's soybeans, but soybeans that we're feeding the animals. So, right. you know, so that's why, you know, it's not, you know, people say, oh, you're, you're interested in animal rights. Well, I'm interested in a lot of things, you know, if you want to, you know, and it's human health. I mean, and here's why I think the game changers is such, such a game could be such a game changer is because, you know, you know, people act out of self-interest. You know, if you tell people, hey, listen, that burger on your plate is, you know, you know, takes 2,500 gallons of water to, to make that burger or, you know, um, it's, you know, you're burning three and a half tons of carbon dioxide until you disprove that it's normal, natural, and necessary. You know, an average person is going to go, well, I don't care. I need to do that. I need to live. You know, what do you want me to do? But this is actionable. I mean, you, when you upgrade your diet to, a, you know, let's, let's call it more plant-based, um, we know that it's the, you know, one of the biggest causes of health problems in this country. You know, it is, there's several, but, you know, meat is at the, again, at the nexus of it. You know, you, you talk to anybody that works on hearts, you know, that, you know, putting in stents or doing, um, you know, bypasses, they'll, they'll point to like, you got to get people off of animal products. It's killing us. It's the biggest cause of disease worldwide. And it's also a lot of good evidence is, you know, the, one of the causes of diabetes, prostate cancer, breast cancer. Now I'm working on a film with Dr. Dean Ornish who's trying to reverse early stage Alzheimer's. And it's too early to say, but it looks like it's working. You know that that you they might be able to reverse what he's done before. The people that don't know, I mean, I think in your world it probably is pretty well known. But Dean has um, uh, Dr. Dean Ornish is with his Preventative Medicine Research Institute. He's reversed first one to reverse heart disease, first one to reverse uh, early stage type two diabetes. He's reversed prostate cancer now. Like I said, with with Alzheimer's. Excuse me, just for one second. Um, so. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's groundbreaking when you can, you know, show that food, what you put on your plate has a direct influence for, for chronic diseases. And with the game changers, you know, the, the average guy, we did the, we did the research and found out that, you know, the, you know, we know this, uh, it's better for your health. We know it's better for, um, you know, climate change, we know it's, it's, it's going to save a lot of animals, but people don't adopt it until you can disprove that it's normal, necessary, and natural. And if you, the, the big impediment is not women. 70% of vegetarians are women. 
Mm. You know, if you go out to eat, I don't know you or your friends, but if you eat a quinoa salad, you're probably getting like, yeah, you know, thumbs up. Good, good job. The guy does that. He's like, oh, look at you, you know. <laughs> and um, but so we had to, we knew that we had to change men. That's why Game Changers mostly has this is women a- athletes in the film that are mm. great. But we focused in on men because men are the impediment to this movement being scaled up. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it has a, a you know, a male bent. I mean, the film's, you know, I think it's good for a kid to look at, a, a, man, a man, women, older person, because, you know, the film does one of these turns at, you know, at the end of Act One, where James Wilkes, who's a, he trains the Navy SEALs. He's a killer. He goes, he's not against type. He's not your typical vegan with a nose ring and purple hair. He's a, you know, <laughs> doesn't have any hair. And he's uh and but he's a killer. He trains the Navy SEALs how to, you know, how to do physical hand-to-hand combat mm-hmm. and win. Um, so he doesn't look like your typical, you know, card-carrying PETA, you know, banner-waving, you know, animal activist. But he's in, he he got injured when he won, after he won the Ultimate Fighting Champion and tried to figure out the best food for recovery and found out that the gladiators, you know, the original mixed martial arts. Uh, you know, combatants were, were uh, plant-based, you know, mm-hmm. by the, they looked at the strontium analysis of the bones and he started like, oh my God, you know, what? You know, the gladiators, <laughs> vegans? And there's some really good evidence. Pliny the Elder wrote in his, you know, he's kind of like one of the, the first like Roman journalists. He wrote uh, that they were called uh, horiari, which means the bean and barley munchers, because <laughs> uh, that's what they use for recovery. And then anyway, that got, they got him on this whole pathway. And that's, uh, you know, we basically follow James around the world as he meets all these, like, you know, one of the world's strongest men, Patrick Baboumian, who's carried more weight further than anybody in history. And Scott Jurek, local boy, um, mm-hmm. you know, who's, you know, the most accomplished ultra runner in the world. He's won Western States seven times. He won the Badwater race through the, uh, you know, uh, Death Valley, 135 miles through like 135 degree heat. I mean, just uh, he's crazy. And we were with him when he uh, he ran the Appalachian Trail. It's like 2,200 miles, 46 days, almost two marathons a day, nonstop for 46 days straight on a plant based diet. You know, so just you know, so we've proven that you can be strong, you can be you know have endurance, and we have this wonderful scene in the film where we talk about virility, how it actually you know increases the guy's performance by you know. 350 to 500%. It's just a single meal. Why are you Some giggling? great games, by the way, have come from that. <laughs> For <laughs> those <what>? who have, <laughs> there's been some great memes on social Oh, media. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, 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 <laughs> see, I've, I've seen them. <laughs> They're hilarious. Yeah. Uh, well, tell me a little bit. I mean, it's such an amazing story. So I, I've seen Game Changers three times. I saw the 13-minute trailer <laughs> when James was at Plant Stock a few years ago. I saw it at the Boulder... <laughs> Best film festival. My son actually broke his leg hitting a tree skiing or snowboarding. Oh, no. I brought him with me. And um, that scene, <laughs> have your mother right next to you. And I'm going, see, when you get older, <laughs> here's a 19 year old boy going, oh my God, my mother's crazy. But it's like, you know, whatever we can do to encourage him to go on that path. But, um, and then we saw it a couple of times. You know, I saw it when it came out and then that plantation project. But it's, it's a very moving documentary and I use I feel like that social contagion is very very important for physicians to pay attention to because if we can get our physicians because we'll touch 2,000 lives on typically a, a, a panel of our patients especially primary care we get a doctor on board who shares that with their patients I feel we could move that even faster. 
this is where this is where I have the most hope. I mean, like you know, uh, listen. I mean, you, you know it better than me, but you know, the average doctor, what one to four hours of of nutrition. It's usually what they're putting in the IV bag. You know, like we're you know, our medical profession is some of the, the least equipped to to teach patients about nutrition. And right. you know, it's one thing. You know, you know. It's, Listen, you know, I don't have to tell your audience probably what, you know, what the problems are, but, you know, you, you're very good at curing people, but way better, way easier, way less expensive is to prevent disease. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not enough effort has been put into prevention. You know, uh, I know a, a friend of mine was, you know, going out to eat with a doctor for breakfast and, you know, she was having bacon and milk and eggs and you know, it's like, oh my God, have, haven't you heard? You know, the, the, you know, the, the literature is out there. We just have all this misinformation out there. I mean, the day before we came out on iTunes, uh, the, the Annals of Internal Medicine, mm -hmm. you know, released this, you know, report saying that, you know, the difference between eating processed meat and meat isn't that big of a deal. Then they started to go give recommendations on this faulty data. Now, what they had done is they'd taken, I think, uh, you know, several reports, a meta-analysis ostensibly, but they gamed it like you can do with any data. So they even went against the, the author's recommendations to reduce meat and uh, came up with, like, you shouldn't do anything because you can't influence people by their, meat, eat, their eating habits anyway which is just like crazy. And of course, and it turns out that these people, you know, uh, their, their funding comes from the fast food industry. The, some of these same people work to the same organization, work for the sugar industry. You know, you can expect these, you know, 2020s when the next dietary recommendations start to come out, you can expect these people to make a salvo uh, right about the time to cause a stir, a lot of disinformation so that, hey, sugar's okay, cholesterol's okay, saturated fat's okay, meat's okay. And so that's where we're fighting against. It's the same playbook that they use for cigarettes, the same, you know, there's these organizations that that's what they do. You know, right. they, they, they put disinformation out there to keep the public, um, you know, in the dark, which is just a, an absolute shame. And I, I, I don't know if this is a, a, a conscious effort. I think people are... They work mainly out of self-interest. Um, I mean, how how else could they get this this data in there? You know, and what they you know what they had done is that they they had they had gone in and and you, you can overcorrect, you know, for these these variables like say okay we're we're trying to find out if uh, saturated fat is a problem so we're going to overcorrect for um, you know cholesterol. And then when they, when they do that, then they, of course, you know, make a statistic. And then they go into they use these studies that are not good studies to look at that. They don't look at the big good studies that we have. They look at the ones that they know that they can game. And then they overcorrect for it. And then they can say, hey, look, this is peer-reviewed. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's in, a, uh, in a great journal. You know, and then that is the validation. And then they, they've, for the next five years, the industry has done their work. You know, they can keep mm -hmm. us, you know, sick, unhealthy and on medication and they can keep on doing business as usual. And of course, I think what everybody in your business line of work is doing is like, we're, we have to be part of that 10%. Mm -hmm. We have to be that, uh, you know, we're on the side of angels here that, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we have the information. We have to just, uh, you know, speak louder, more intelligent and, and get the word out there because, 
you know, we spend $3.6 trillion a year on sick care in America. 80 to 85% of it is reversible. Uh, these are fixable problems. You know, we spend more, we spend six times more on sick care than we do on defense. Yeah. You know, we're, we're spending more on medication now than we are on food. You know, we are, you know, and, and at the, pro the root of it is, is animal products, which are, you know, obviously killing the, killing the planet. You know, we're, you know, between cows and humanity and, the, and farm animals, we're like 96% of the biomass of mammals on the planet. You know, there's 4% of wild animals. So we're, we're killing the planet. We're killing ourselves. We're killing the planet. We're needlessly killing, you know, you know hundreds of millions, trillions of animals every year needlessly. So that's why I'm passionate about this work and, and, and trying to amplify what you guys are all doing because it's, it's important. It's not just a movie. It's a movement that we're trying to get started. Right. I, I've been vegan for eight years and that leads me to the question. It was a patient actually who we accidentally discovered a plant-based diet in Western Colorado <laughs> yeah. on the other side of the mountain. And uh, so what led you to actually become vegan? Like, what was it? Was this something you were raised with or what happened? Well, um, it, it was a, a painfully slow project process. When I look back at it, 1986, I was working for fortune magazine. I was doing a story on the biggest independently owned ranches in America, and one of them was so big, it was in Oklahoma, and they had they killed about 500 cattle, every, you know, of their own every day. And I went to this uh, the slaughterhouse, and the first thing that they do when they kill a cattle is they they put it down the chute, and the, the animals are sensing what's going on. So you see the fear, and you can smell it. I mean, not the the fear, but I mean, they're they're they let go of their bladder and their their bowels when they you know, they see what's going on because it's, you know, they're not dumb, but they put, the first thing they do is they put a captive bolt to the brain. It's like a, a, a bolt with a hydraulic um, uh, shot behind it and it goes into the brain. It's supposed to kill it instantly. Then they, they hang it upside down. They start to strip the, you know, this, the hide off and then they start cutting off pieces of it. And it's going around in this sort of like a conveyor belt, like you'd almost see at a car factory, except this one cow wasn't dead and it's coming by me and it's hanging upside down and it's looking at me with this eye. And as it's going around the room, it's looking at the, you know, it's tongues hanging out, but it's looking at me, following me around the, around the room. And I realized it's, it's not dead. And I thought, okay, I can't, you know, the, now I know why they say, excuse me, you know, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, there'd be no slaughterhouses because, you know, right there. And I thought, well, I have to, stop eating animal products because I, I don't want to be party of those. It's just to say things that walk. I thought, well, I, I need, still need to eat animals, but you know, I'll, I'll cut it off at fish. So I, I, I ate fish. I was a pescatarian for, I don't know what, 20 some years, like 30 years. And then I made the cove. And one of the last scenes in that movie is we take a hair sample for Mercury at the deputy minister of fisheries, Hideki Morinoki. And we, uh, wanted to test it for mercury because, you know, mercury gets, uh, uh, it bioaccumulates in the, in the oceans. It has six tropic levels of the, the food chain from, you know, the algae up to like a swordfish or a dolphin or a tuna. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you can have a million times more mercury uh, accumulating at the top level. And his, uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to send his sample and I'll send mine in separately just to see what mine is. Cause I was a pescatarian. Obviously my son, you know, it was a, it still is a professional fisherman and I had freezers and boulder full of fish, but you know, he'd come back from Mexico and I had like 300 pounds of fish and that's what I would use, 
you know, for the next couple of years. And I, I was always eating fish for, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. Thinking that I could, I was like being super healthy, way healthier than anybody else. Well, it turns out his, his levels, Mornuki's, uh, mercury levels were eight times higher than considered high. So like wow. eight times more than, you know, it was very serious. Mine was 44. And yeah. And, wow. um, I mean, that shock just went through me because I thought, okay, well, my, the last thing I could hold on to was fish. What am I going to eat? You know, cause I, I was thinking back then that, you know, you know, you have to eat animal products. What, what are you, how are you going to get around that? And I just thought, I'm going to, I'm going to shrivel up and die. There's not going to be anything left to eat, you know? And uh, remember, this is about the time the COVID was coming out. We were in L.A. for the Academy Awards, uh, and I met this vegan. And uh, I said, what do you eat? And she goes, everything else? You know, all, <laughs> all protein originates in plants. That's where do you think the, you know, the cows get it from? And, you know, and it's, 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 it just sort of struck me then that, you know, listen, there's, there's people that are surviving that, you know, have a vegan diet. And that was kind of, that was the, you know, I still like thought, okay, well, I can get away with eating small fish, you know, and to supplement, you know, this, because I wasn't sure about that diet. And then, uh, you know, mercury has a half-life in your body of seven, about 70 to 90 days. And so I got it down to something that I thought was, was the line, my, you know, the levels were coming down. I thought, well, I'll just eat smaller, you know, fish because they're smaller fish, smaller, short-lived fish are less toxic. And then my level shot back up again. I thought, well, okay, I can't mess with that because, you know, mercury is the most toxic non-radioactive element in the world. There's nothing in it. It starts, it's destroying neurons. I've seen the brains from Minamata victims in Japan that have, they're called Minamata disease, but it's really a poisoning. And it's, it's basically, I asked the, the, one of the doctors there, what's it mean to have mercury poisoning and he says it slowly erases what it means to be human mm. it, it attacks your senses you start to lose your you know your, your hearing your sense of touch your vision your memory and when you look at the brains of them it's, it looks like swiss cheese where it's being eaten out so uh that so I, I think i probably went vegan you know a little bit before you did you know maybe 10 years ago or something like that but um but it was a, you know the last reason i did it was health it wasn't for like animal rights or ethics you know it was it was really personal health wow that's that's really incredible so your son is a commercial fisherman yeah down, down in antigua in the west indies where we used to live yeah wow so he hasn't been influenced by your work yeah and you know he and the game changes is coming out and he says dad everybody in the island is seeing your film and i said well I, I hope i don't put you out of business and he says i hope you <laughs> I, I i said i hope he says i hope you do Oh, <laughs> that's a good son. Yeah. Now you have two children. Is he, are, they, are any of them vegan? Your wife? Uh, well, my ex-wife. Yeah, she's she was uh, she's probably more plant-based now. You know, that was sort of a um, that was a little. Now I don't want to get into it, but that was a little no, bit no. Of the contention that we had. You know, I I feel like you know when you start going down this path, it's not just. I mean. Listen, I'm I'm very aware. I think probably like a lot of people, this podcast is vegans can be just incorrigible. We're the worst, you know, because we think, you know, we become like evangelical about like, you know, proselytizing this diet because it's you feel like it it is important. I mean, whether you're coming at it from ethics or the climate or just personal health, if you love somebody, you want them to live longer. You know, mm -hmm. who wouldn't? 
I mean, that's how I look at it. When you start to see like Dr. Dr. Ornish or Esselstyn or any of these people, everybody's doing it now, reversing disease, you think, well, I want my girlfriend's, you know, mother and father to have to, to know this information, to be living longer so that, you know, that they don't have to, you know, go through the pain and the suffering that, that doesn't have to be there. You don't, mm-hmm. you can, you can alleviate that. You can, you can um, extend lives by, you know, a long time, you know, uh, we're dealing with these, uh, well, dealing, we're, we're, like I said, I'm working with Alzheimer's patients right now. And that's the most, one of the most painful things that you can do because you start to lose your memory. And, you know, when you lose your memory, you, you're losing everything that was important about life. Um, and the, the idea that we can, we could prevent one out of three people in America are going to be affected by Alzheimer's, you know, either you're going to be taking care of a loved one. And by the way, if, if you're well, one out of three people, this is important to know that, you know, there's a 600% chance of your mate having Alzheimer's too, because chances are you're eating the same way and your, your lifestyle is very much the same way. And I mean, I, I think these, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that it's not all diet. That's a really strong, huge component of it. But, you know, uh, Ornish's program is whole foods plant-based diet not just vegan diet oreos and coca-cola are vegan that's not what we're talking about (laughs) whole foods plant-based diet um exercise um stress reduction and group support and uh, dealing or or talking with uh i hope i get get her name right but uh, dean and aisha shurzai from the brain health and alzheimer's shurzai's uh and alzheimer's clinic in loma linda they would add to that sleep getting you know plenty of sleep and they told me something that was pretty astounding. This is we interviewed them at the plantation conference, and you know they said at you know when they opened the Alzheimer's clinic down there, nobody came. And out of the three thousand, because you know uh, Loma Linda is one of the so-called blue zones regions of the planet, where one of the five regions on the planet where people live the longest without chronic disease, and you know very few people came they have now they have 3000 people in the that come through the clinic only 19 of them have been vegetarians really yeah and loma linda is like i looked it up this morning there's 24000 people that live in, in the town about 9000 or more are you know almost half are are um, seventh day adventists and the seventh day adventists by their religion you know, they say, you know, I think where they, they take Genesis literally where, you know, God said, you know, basically get, you know, let the, let the newts and fruits of the trees be your, your meat. And mm-hmm. they take that, you know, so they're, they, you know, you, apparently I'm going down there uh, week after next to meet them and, and, you know, meet some of the people in Loma Linda. I mean, just I'm fascinated by like the, you know, the 80 and 90 year olds that are working out at the gym at five in the morning, you know, just like, it's kind of like uh I don't know. It, it's, it sounds like heaven, <laughs> you know. But, and then it's a, you know. So lifestyle is is obviously a, a a huge part of this, you know. And I think everybody's trying to to get to that point. Like, how do you, you know, just not make, you know, make a better life, not just for diet, but you know, for everything else. And it 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 turns out that, you know, I'm doing another film right now on uh sorry i'm emotional here (laughs) i'm doing a film right now with uh, the dalai lama and desmond tutu uh based on their book of joy 
And, you know, a lot of the same tenets they have about what makes us happy, about what gives us, you know, true happiness. Uh, you know, people, people think, well, I'll be happy if I get a good job and make a lot of money, but, you know, um, you know, got a shiny car, all that stuff is just noise. What mm -hmm. gives us, what gives us joy, joy that makes us feel good about waking up in the morning and about doing this work. And I think they, they probably have it in Loma Linda, that sense of community. But when, you, when you're helping other people, when you're doing work where you're really, I mean, and we're hardwired for it. And, that, and the reason that you, let's say, you, you get that award, you get that, that, job, that job that you always wanted, you, you make, you're making tons of money or you're, you have the beautiful mate and it's like giving you unhappiness. If you're, if you're not aligning your values with what makes us human, you know, it gives us pure joy. If you're not helping other people, you know, being you know, supportive of other people, then, you know, you're, you're not going to be fulfilled. And you're probably not going to live as long because that's one of the, you know, the tenets of the blue zone is just having a, a really strong sense of purpose as well. Right. Absolutely. Does that encompass your drive to make these incredible movies? I mean, I've seen all of them. It's, and I saw, you know, the racing extinction last night and, um, I was so moved to do something even more. So I have three kids. One's in medical school. They're all wow. vegan. One's uh, about to finish his marketing degree and he wants to do an e-waste, um, recycling social entrepreneur. And my little one wants to be like you and I'm yeah. sending him all this stuff. And I was like, Gabe, I really need you to pay attention here. Cause I think these are some folks that can, you can, you know, are illustrating what you want to do. Where do you feel like that is, um, when you do something, because I know what it's like to change someone's life, to get them better, to cure diabetes, and they're out traveling and seeing their kids on the sidelines, and they're playing with their kids, and they're doing all these things. For me, that is what you're talking about. It's very tangible, but this is a, a documentary. It's a big scale. And how does that feel uh, to you? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, you know, um, it, it's really not about me. It's really about the, you know, it's, it takes a big team, really, you know, energetic team that, uh, the the editor, the writers, the um, you know the cinematographers, getting everybody on board. Uh, it feels great once you you you've come together and you make a film. Um, and there, you know, by the way, the films that we do are really, you know, most producers or directors in Hollywood would you know, and I'm not in Hollywood by the way, but I'm you know I'm a, you know on the fringes of of filmmaking with as a documentary filmmaker, you're not really. You know, you're not in that fold, but, you know, they look at, you know, their scorecard is box office mojo. How many, I mean, you know, how many butts and seats did we get this weekend? And, mm -hmm. you know, they're looking at the money, you know, as a barometer of how well they did. And that's kind of what's wrong with what I, just, I was just talking about. You know, we look at it as, you know, minds and seats, you know, that mm -hmm. when you can influence somebody so that they come out of the film and they're, you know, become one of these warriors for making the, the world a little bit better place that's that's the goal that's the gift you know the impact from the film is uh is what we're after and we designed the film like that so that people are inspired to come in like with the help you know the cove or the you know racing extinction just do one thing you know to to start working towards that goal because once you start with one thing you know, that was part of that campaign then you want to you feel you feel good and you start you want to do something else and it gets mm -hmm. better and better and you know, it's a, it's a, it's important to realize too. Like we, these these problems are big. When you look at healthcare or race, you know, extinction. But you know, you know, you can think, oh, that's just overwhelming. But when you realize that 
you can turn things around, you know, and, and these social changes happen really quick. There's a, um, a futurist by the name, no, name of Tony Saba who shows this uh, picture of the, it's the 1905 Easter parade in New York City looking down Broadway and it's like all horses, you know, except for one car. And it's like, well, find Waldo, find the, find the, find the car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can imagine people, you know, like back then there was 300,000 horses in New York, 20,000 of them dying every, every year. So, you know, the, the streets smelled bad, the flies all over, people had it, uh, you know, on their shoes coming into the homes and the offices. It was, um, you know, it wasn't pretty, but you can imagine what they're thinking when they see this one car, like, look at that crazy guy, you know, <laughs> what does he think he is? You know, what a nut. And I, I remember I had the first electric car, one of the first electric cars, just to say in Boulder, you know, we had three electric cars in 2007. We had 120 solar panels over, and, you know, the la license, my license plate on my car said, vehicle using sun, you know, <laughs> the opposite of an SUV. And people thought I was nuts, you know, and, you know, now I, th I read last month that Mercedes is now building their last internal combustion engine. You know, these, these revolutions, these, these changes, you know, that, we have, they talk about, it took about 10 years. So anyway, the Easter parade, 10 years later in New York, there's an Easter parade and it's like, you know, find the horse, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, people say, oh, it's going to take so long to change. Well, you know, 12 years ago, we were hitting the number two key six times to make a capital C when we texted. <laughs> I mean, you know, now you, you look, there's nobody in an audience <laughs> that, that has a, that has a, flip you know, phone. that doesn't have a smartphone. Yeah, nobody <laughs> has a flip phone. But, you know, and I think it's going to be that way with this diet. You know, we keep mm. on, we just keep on hammering home the science. And there's going to be people pushing, pushing back. There's going to be the industry trying to game the, you know, the good science that everybody has done to try to undermine, you know, for their own self-interest that, you know, that these unhealthy animal foods are, you know, in fact, you know, they'll say good for you, but you know, we just have to keep on coming back with the science and show, and pointing out where they're wrong, where they, you know, how they're, how they are gaining the system and who's, who's behind them. Right. You know, it's the, it's the industry that has the most to, to lose. Wow. Absolutely. I was, uh, I got, have you heard of the Elm, I think it's the Elmhurst farms in New York. A, they were yeah. a dairy. And so oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's such an amazing story of how you can pivot, even though you had this industry for generations in your family, but now they're following the trend and understanding the significance they can do. And it's, it's really exciting to see those type of things happen. And um, I, I can't even imagine, but the, the one you're working on, is that the, with the, you said the Dalai Lama, the, is it the, I don't know how to say it right, looser or? Oh, the Loser ecosystem. Oh, I'm, I'm working on several films. I've been, oh. you know, I've been, I've, been, I've been doing, I've been doing one film every four to five years, but I just realized it's, uh, it's not sustainable. Uh -huh. So we have, a, we have a bunch going on right now, and I'm, I'm either executive producing or directing. But the ones that I'm directing, uh, yeah, the one on uh, the, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, it's on, based on their book of joy. How do you find joy in a world of sadness? Uh -huh. um, boy, I'm just. Uh, uh, there's one I'm, I'm helping out on. Uh, it's on big wave surfing. It's uh, mm. four, four females have gotten parody in the sport of big wave surfing at, at Mavericks. So it's a big wave down here about 20 miles from me. Um, it's like this killer wave. And these women have, you know, fought for and got parody across the whole sport of, of, of surfing. 
Wow. Um, so it's, it's really a film about women's empowerment. You know, you always try to figure out, try to figure out, okay, I don't care about surfing necessarily, but I do care about, you know, your gender getting, <laughs> you know, you know, equal standing. Um, so this, so I'm helping a, a female director work on that film. Um, one on the, 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 it's called the Loser Ecosystem, but we're calling it the last place on earth because it's the last place on earth where uh, tigers, orangutans, elephants, and rhinos are found in the wild together. And we fo we're focusing on four, uh, but it's being decimated because of illegal palm oil plantations. But there's, we're focusing on this positive story about these four activists who are winning back the environment for, the, you know, for this last Garden of Eden. Um, yeah, it's, we've, we've got a lot, of, a lot of projects going on. And, you know, there's one about uh, just probably taking it on today about uh, getting all 50 states um, uh, off of fossil fuels by 2050. Uh, and there's, there's a, a Stanford um, professor that's worked out a plan for that. So we're, you know, we're working on uh, a lot of projects at the same time. Wow. That is a, that is such an, I was, I was thinking about your, <laughs> no problem. Sorry. No, that's okay. I understand. Um, the racing extinction, when I look across all the work that you did to put that together, I mean, I can't imagine the amount of time and planning and the coordination <laughs> that that takes. How do you even start such a humongous project? I mean, like, where does your brain even go to say, okay, this is what I want at the end? <laughs> How do you question. start? <laughs> uh, well, you know, in my case, I mean, I was, I, I, you know, if you look at the structure of that film, it basically shows, like, why are we doing it? And it, it, I outlined, like I told you before, that I did these four stories for National Geographic on extinction. And then you meet the people I talked to that informed me about extinction. Michael Novacek from the American Museum of Natural History, where he says, well, you know, this time, you know, we are the, you know, we're the, humanity is the, the meteor. You're really learning about it the way I learned about it. And then, uh, you know, uh, what was it Ian Forster said the, you know, the longest, you know, the, uh, I'm probably misquoting this, but you know, you just take the first step, you know, each, the longest journey begins with the first step, like, okay, <laughs> let's start and, you know, try to figure out, well, where do we want to end up, you know, and we had, you know, we started that film, that's uh, a funny story, you know, we were at the, you know, people don't know the history. So we're, so we won the Academy Awards, right? So we were, so what, at the run-up to the Academy Awards, we, uh, I was in town, the, the team was getting a commendation from the city of LA. And we had found this restaurant called The Hump that was selling whale meat. And uh, we had gone in with, um, with federal officers to try to bust this restaurant. And um, we, we got, we got this, you know, we got the meat, we showed it to them and they said, well, you need a chain of custody. What's that? Well, one of them, us has to witness it. Well, um, we didn't have the money to come back and do the bust and they tried to do it themselves and they couldn't get the restaurant to sell it to them because they probably didn't look like, you know, they probably looked like <laughs> FBI agents. And uh, <laughs> but, so we were down in LA, like, like a couple months later and I was looking around and we had the whole team there, you know, that we did for, you know, that did the cove. And I thought, let's go bust the hump. So this is, oh yeah, so, we, so we went there, we got, we wrangled the, you know, there's three federal agencies, I think Fish and Wildlife, I won't be able to remember, remember them all now, but there's three agencies that we got together and um, they were all at the sushi bar. Our people ordered the meat 
and that's how we, you know, we, that's how we open Racing Extinction, so we can kind of get into the, you know, so it feels like a heist, you know. It was um, a covert operation. It looked like. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun, and, and you know, we closed. <laughs> we, we closed down the restaurant, but here's the cool thing: is like, you know, we we won the Academy Award on us. I guess it was a Sunday night, and then on Monday night or Monday morning, there's a front page story in the New York times about the guys that won the hump just went, you know, uh, why they were there, they were busting this restaurant. And so (laughs) it just became this wonderful news story, you know, and it just, the the film and the, you know, just sort of went. And, and, you know, in in a way, I think we have almost the same opportunity to do something very similar right now, because, you know, there's a part of the game changers where we talk about this industry where they have these people, these, these people that are paid to basically say, hey, asbestos is not that bad. You know, don't worry about mercury. Mercury's not an issue. And you know, hey, look at, you know, these you know, cigarettes are okay. You know, the, there's these people that are they're paid scientists that, you know, get paid to go back and gain the system. And that's going on right now. It's, it's in our film that's just going on. And then, like I said, the day before it comes out on iTunes, the same thing happens. And I was telling our producers, "Is like we, we need to capitalize on this." And we we did. We, we you know we went and talked to some of the the writers for the you know Washington Post just came out with a, an article I think last week about this. But there's just more information there. This is a it's a really dirty business. Oh. Um, I mean, of course, you know they'll, they'll always say, "Well, look at you know look who's behind you." We have you know people from the plant based industry supporting our film. But you know, like I said, we're on the side of angels. They're not right. You know? I love that side of angels. I'm going to use that actually. oh gosh um when i can't even imagine what it means to be someone who's okay i was in the military right so and i was stationed in places i don't want to go back to but i never had to go under (laughs) covert operations with a camera and then there's so many places that you're doing that and, and i think i can't you were uh looking for shark oil or well shark oil. Yeah, in, in China, yeah. In China, and you had, they pulled, you were like, I'm gonna be mad, I'm from Brooklyn, and you were sitting there having this discussion and someone pulls you outside, like your camera's right there, and like, you're like, oh my goodness, they see it. I mean, it was, what? It was a microphone, yeah. <laughs> okay, how do you stay calm? And those are situations I'm, I'm like. I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm, I've, I've got to be the worst one on the team for you know, <laughs> nervous Nelly. You know, um, uh, the, the, the team, quite honestly, is a lot braver than I am. You know, the, the people, they're, they're, uh, um, they're amazing. The, the Game Changers doesn't, you know, I'm not even in the Game Changers, you know, but um, we, you know, I, the third film, I thought, I don't want to be in this film. I show up once, I have like an Alfred Hitchcock moment, you know, I show yeah. up as a cameo. When yeah. Patrick Baboumian, uh, you know, he's, he, he's carried more weight than anybody in, you know, in, in history, like 1,200 and some odd pounds. It's like the weight of a horse. And, you know, they have these big, huge, like, weights you see at the gym for the heavy guys. And I said, well, you know, people don't know what that weighs. You know, they looks, it looks like he's strained. But it's like, why don't we lift something that he can see? So the whole crew got on this, this called a yoke. And so he was, like, taking us down this German road with us on his shoulders. <laughs> it was pretty funny. It's a piece, so I'm I'm in the back left, you know. Okay. The, that. So that that was my, but I really didn't want to be in that film because I thought, okay, let's just be, you know, it, and it, I don't, I never really thought of the Cove or Racing Extinction being about me. It's really about the issue. Right. Um, but I didn't want to be. I'm, you know, I'm getting old now. I just didn't want to be part of the, you know, like I just want to try to do a film without. For, first of all, I want to do a film that was positive. 
you know, right. like, you know, people say, well, what's the cove about? Oh, it's about <laughs> dolphin slaughter. Oh, great. I'll put that on my queue with 300 films in front of it. <laughs> Or racing extinction. What's that about? Oh, it's about you know the oh, world, you know, mass extinction event. You know, so we we try, we try to make it exciting. You know, that's that's you know, it's also it's always important to remember that you're in the film business. You know, so mm-hmm. it's got to be entertaining. You know, there's right. a very small p- part of the population that you know really wants to be. I mean, even me, I don't. You know, a lot of a lot of documentaries is too. You know, like oof. You know, you have to sort of like be in the mental headspace to see it. Our films are, you know, even the Cove is like, you know, it's, you know, it has this one scene in it that is, it can be haunting, both, you know, scar your viewers for life. But it's, uh, you know, the, it's, you know, Rolling Stone said it's like a cross between Born Identity and Flipper. You know, it's a, it's a, it's exciting. You know, be people, you know, forget that. Like, it's an exciting movie. It's a lot of fun. Right. You know, wow. it, it does get, gets your heartbeat up. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a light bite, but you know you're going to learn a lot when you see the mm. see the cove. You'll you'll learn about how what we're doing with the oceans. You'll see a lot of excitement. You'll uh, and you'll probably want to get involved. You know mm-hmm. when you when you see what's going on, because once you see a movie like the cove, you cannot unsee it. Right. It's like the Earthlings. I uh, made my kids watch that too as soon as. <laughs> discovered that's that why one. they're all that's why all are vegan that's why they're scarred <laughs> well they didn't have a choice honestly so well now they do they're in their 20s but uh i came home overnight eight years ago and my poor husband he ended up losing 70 pounds by the way so he thanks me for that um wow. you know overnight i had a lupus patient get better and i was like i and another patient whose daughter pulled herself off two add meds at 16 in 30 days and i'm just like and it was an accidental suggestion and i said i can't I can't continue this. I had no health issues to, you know, to deal with um, other than I'd, I've been hypothyroid since the birth of my second child, but that got better too. And uh, I, I just couldn't not be uh, like, I have to do what I'm going to tell my patients to do and um, right. pretty incredible stuff. But we had a, it was interesting. I had a quarter of a grass fed beef in my refrigerator or freezer, excuse me, in the garage. Right. I cleaned out everything overnight. And I said, we're going on a plant-based diet. My husband's like, well, are you still cooking? I'm like, yeah. He goes, okay, whatever. This is Earthlings? No, this, this, no, Earthlings came later. This uh-huh. is after my patients got better after a two week period. Um, okay. And I came home and I said, I read the China study in two days and 400 pages of it. And I was like, nope, we're done. I'm not feeding you guys this. this uh, we can't. Um, so I cleaned it all out one night. And then two days later, our freezer broke. Um, no kidding. And a quarter of that grass-fed beef, the blood and the, the stench. And my husband's like, well, if I wouldn't, had you, we had gone to church and came back and the meat was all had to get disposed of. And I was like, I didn't know what I was going to do with that anyway. And I'm so thankful. You know, uh, I think it's the hand of God personally, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been amazing to see those, like you said, it, you know, those ripple effects even years later of touching one life and then they touch multiple lives. And it, it's, it's such a, mm, it's I call it veggie crack. It's like my dopamine hit. It's like eat <laughs> your veggies. <laughs> Give me my dopamine hit, please. But um, so incredible. I mean, so just I do have a few fun facts I want to talk to you about, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, all the time. So I I heard um, that there's something called Baby Louie, named. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually that started in Boulder. Uh, my friends of mine. Did it? Uh, yeah, Charlie and Flo McGovern uh, mm-hmm. were. Uh, they had they were preparing this is back in my dinosaur days at uh, 
they were preparing uh, this egg and they found a, an, an embryo inside of it, like a, a skeleton of a baby dinosaur that wasn't hatched yet. Wow. And, and Bob Bakker, who's another local board, uh, Boulder boy, uh, at least at the time he was, uh, he named it Baby Louie. <laughs> uh, after me because of, of my work I did a story uh, for National Geographic a cover story on dinosaur eggs so they named it after me so that's awesome it's it's a it's a it's a baby um it's carnivorous uh, isn't it yeah it's carnivorous yeah <laughs> <laughs> See, what time it, that year yeah I, well I still I still was back then yeah <laughs> slightly carnivorous <laughs> That's oh funny. my goodness. And then there was, there's, so I heard that you were also um, in Sylvester funny. Stallone's wedding or no, no, a wedding photographer in one of Sylvester Stallone's movies. The Fist. Yeah. Fisk, uh, Federation of Interstate Truckers, a Norman Jewison film. Yeah. I was um, uh, befriended by Sylvester Stallone and Norman Jewison and they put me in that film as a wedding photographer. It's a very <laughs> small scene. I think I have a, a speaking part where I think uh, my line was smile now. That was a big line. So uh, I, I thought I was 17, but I think I was a little bit older than that. But um, yeah, that was sort of my introduction to Hollywood a long time ago. Wow. Well, what, what, <laughs> how did you meet Sylvester Stallone to be in? <laughs> I was doing, this is right after Rocky. He came to my hometown in Dubuque, Iowa. And I was, okay. um, you know, and I told you I was working, you know, I met a, a, a newspaper photographer when I was in this photography class. Well, that, Photographer worked. Marshall Marvelli worked at the Dubuque Telegraph Herald, and I was a newspaper boy there. So I, I, started, I was an intern, um, okay. and uh, I uh, the movie came to town. It was a you know it was a film of, basically about Jimmy Hoffa, and uh, Stallone played the Hoffa like character. And our t they were looking for a town that was looked like it was depressed and from the 1930s, and they picked my hometown. <laughs> and I was a newspaper photographer. And, a buddy of mine was a writer and said, hey, I think this movie's coming to town. I just met the uh, producer on the plane coming over here. Uh, let's do a film. Let's do a, a, a coverage of it. I started covering it. And we ended up hanging out the, with the film for the summer. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. That was, yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, especially for a young person. I mean. Oh, yeah, it was crazy because, you know, <laughs> like, you know, to, like, to Stallone, there probably at that time wasn't a bigger you know, he was just off, just off the first Rocky, not the seventh oh, wow. one or whatever they're up to now. I mean, he was, you know, everybody wanted to, you know, the, the press and everybody wanted to be in. I'll tell you the story of how this all happened. We, you know, I was in the dressing room with him. He's getting his hair cut. And uh, trying to remember how this all happened. Yeah, so uh, the, we were out. We're, it's, movie sets are really slow and boring, right? Nothing's going on, and there's this. Uh, I've never been on one, so I don't know. <laughs> oh well, there's, there's nothing, and nothing happens for quite a while. Oh, anyway, okay. there was this this woman that uh, wanted to meet him. And it was her birthday, like she wanted. You know, it was her birthday, and she said to me, "You know, can I meet your friend over there, Stallone?" And I, I, I so nothing to do. So I told Stallone, "That's her birthday." One, and he says, "Let's go over there. Get your, get your camera." So I went over there and he's, he's talking to her. He says, you, you ready? And I said, sure. And he, so he, he gives her a kiss and, and then <laughs> she, she sort of, she sort of swoons. And he says, he said to me, did you get it? I go, one more, I think, you know, then, then he picks her up and kisses her. He said, do you get that one? He said, do you get that one? And I said, no, it's one more just to be sure. We're sort of working together here. And he oh gives her this big, this big Rudolph Valentino. And, and, <laughs> 
and that was the front page of the paper the next day. Oh my goodness! And and you know he, go, he comes he says to me the next day he says you know that picture of the paper is a nice one but like uh, you know my wife and I aren't doing so well. <laughs> so. so um, and, and so I got back, I got back to the paper that day and there was like, you know, everybody wanted that picture, you know, because it was like, a, you know, kind of, a, you know, I don't know, you know, it was just, yeah, it was happened to be at the right moment, at the right time. And he was a big celebrity and uh, it's conflicted because they're offering more money than I made in the summer. Right. Wow. And, uh, and so I, I cut the negative up and I went down to the movie set and I said, Hey, listen, if the picture ever gets out there, it's not because of me, here's the negatives. And he goes, you did that for me. He says, if you want to get on the set, do anything you want. You know, he got Norman Jewis and then he, he, he maybe he got me a part in the movie. And Aww. that's how, that's how it all came about. Integrity but, pays. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I guess. I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. It says, it says, says volumes. Um, when I was an intern, um, I'm in family medicine many, many years ago and we were rounding and I, in where I was in West Texas at Texas Tech, there wasn't very many surgeon like, surgeon residencies and so when they got a family practice intern they're like yes fresh meat we'll use them <laughs> and so i'd round on this i was with a bariatric surgeon and very electrolytes are important potassium and things and one of them said you know one morning i was rounding at four in the morning i went to medical school with three little kids too so it was like i was always sleep deprived so it's not gone me to to miss something which is unfortunate um but i i accidentally didn't write an order to replace the potassium of one of his patients and he's like this patient's potassium we're doing around isn't, you know, fixed and who's responsible. Because I said, that's my fault. I'm so sorry. It won't happen again. And he just stopped. Everybody's like, what did you say? I was like, I'm, I'm so sorry. It's my fault, sir. I apologize. You know, I'm straight laced. <laughs> like I'll own anything I've done because that's the way I was raised. And he's like, you, nobody ever does that. Nobody owns anything. <laughs> and then he calls me and then he's like, called me for everything and just laid all the work. I was like, Oh my goodness. I was being punished for being good. <laughs> but it was such a, a clear picture to do the right thing. Yeah. Even, you know, it's easier not to, but um, yeah, I, I think that's phenomenal. And there's one, something about finding bones, something about finding someone's bones um uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Edward, Edward Drinker, Edward Drinker Coke. Coke what does that mean that you found his bones on a museum shelf like bones he discovered or his bones well yeah him like so when oh. I was working for when I was, work, <laughs> when I was working for geographic um there was this period well this I was doing the first dinosaur story I did for them this is about 1991 and um there's a period of American paleontology where two of the top paleontologists, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Marsh, they were best friends and they would like, you know, work on papers together. They would, you know, describe, you know, dinosaurs. And anyway, they became uh, enemies when I think Edward Drinker Cope pointed out that Othniel Marsh had put the head at the wrong end of the dinosaur. It was, a, it was actually a, 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 a a sea, like a, a, sea, a sea creature it looks like a like a, a long lizard but underwater and so he put the head at the wrong end and then oh embarrassed God. Othniel Marsh and they became you know this this like bitter enemies and they would like you know allegedly like one of them try to blow up the other one's box, car, box cars full of fossils they'd pay their field hands to try to you know get the you know the fossils to them so they could describe them before the other ones. But it was a very productive period in, in paleontology in America between this, this called the great bone wars where they, they actually, 
describe more dinosaurs than in any other period, I believe, ever in history uh, wow. because of this sort of uh, rivalry. And I wanted to illustrate the rivalry um, by getting artifacts from museums. And I was, you know, at the time I was on the East Coast and I went to the Smithsonian Museum not knowing what they would have there. I said, do you have any artifacts from uh, Neil Marsh? And the guy, the head paleontologist says, oh yeah, come on downstairs. And like, we went, you know, Smithsonian, right? You're going through like, you know, they have like, they only got like a you know, small percentage of the stuff on display upstairs, but like you go downstairs, they have all these fossils that, and they had, you know, behind a file cabinet between the, the wall and the edge of a file cabinet, they had these original marsh drawings of the first dinosaurs that were ever articulated. These are brontosaurs that were found tip of the nose, the tip of the tail. And these, these are the first drawings ever made of a dinosaur, what it actually looked like, because back then they only, if over on the, in, in Europe, they'd only found pieces of dinosaurs, right? Oh, this is wow. the first time they ever found one all together. So it's just hand drawing from uh, Neil Marsh. And I said, he said, uh, I said, I can take that. He says, oh yeah, I, I was gonna throw it away anyway. I said, well, <laughs> why, why are you gonna throw it away? He said, well, cause the curator said, uh, you know, how, long, how much would it cost to restore the picture? There was be like 40 of the painting, uh, the drawing about, they said about $40,000. He said, well, just throw it away. Just, just photograph it and throw it away because we don't have money to do it. So he thought, well, we're throw it away anyway. You know, he lent it to me. And so as I'm going up the East Coast to various museums, trying to collect artifacts for this picture, this illustration I'm doing to National Geographic. Um, you know, I, I remember I stopped at uh, Philadelphia where Cope uh, had, was a curator at the Philadelphia Academy of Sciences. And I was asking the, the head paleontologist, do you have any, any Cope artifacts? And he says, oh, well, we have, um, you know, we have fossils that are still wrapped up by his own hands and newspapers and twine. We haven't even opened them because we know he did it, you know, and we have railroad receipts from this, you know, uh, transporting fossils from the West. And, oh, he's on a shelf downstairs. And I said, what? And he said, <laughs> oh yeah, he wanted, he wanted to be a type specimen for mankind. You know, it's a, it's a one up off Neil Marsh, who, who was, at, was at the Peabody Museum. And oh my uh, so, so the, the way it works in paleontology, if you're the first oh. one to, des to describe uh, uh, something, something, you get to name it, you know? So, oh, okay. so, Cope, so Cope wanted to be the type specimen for mankind, but apparently this is, well, remember this is like 1890, something like 1994, 1995, I think he died. And um, I might have those years wrong, but anyway, he was, he was, uh, uh, this is Victorian era and he had the beginning signs of syphilis. So he was like, you know, his, his bones weren't pristine. They said, well, we can't have a type specimen of somebody that's diseased. So he was put on a shelf down there. He's in two boxes. His, his skull was in one and the rest of the bones were in another. And I said, well, can I, can I have the professor? <laughs> and so I, 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 so I checked him out like a library book. You know, the little card for it, you know, so I signed it out and I, you know, I, I'm walking out of this museum with these fossils and, you know, with Cope under one arm and, you know, you know my, my buddy's got the bones in the other. And I, I remember we, we were like, Jesus, now I, 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 call, I, I got out, we got out of the car. I remember I stopped at a phone booth and I called Geographic's lawyers and I said, listen, you know, we better get this stuff insured. Yeah. And I said, well, what do you got? And so, you know, they said, well, the, the Marsh drawing list, $40,000 I'm going through putting figures on this. And I got Edward Drinker Cope, you know, and what do you mean? I said, well, this is this old professor that's you know, the bones of him. And, what, and they said, what's he worth? And I go, 
I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to call the museum back and say like, what do you? What do you put? What do you put up the professor at? You know, what's 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 he worth? What's he worth to you? And, but I was going up to New York next, and I wanted to like you know, in case of the van oh. got robbed. And oh, so um, I remember like like everywhere we went, the the assistant, you know, we, we thought, okay, well, everything could get stolen has a value on it, the cameras, whatever. But we better not get coat lost. So we would we'd take him into the restaurants with us and stuff like that. <laughs> That's uh, actually a funny story. So uh, I get up to American Museum, Natural, American Museum of Natural History, where Cope was used to be one of the curators, and I'm talking to Michael Novichak, who told me about racing extinction. You know, I went to the Gobi oh. Desert with him, and um, oh, yeah, this is this this predates um, you know me finding out about the mass extinction. So uh, I remember we we're you know in the Great Hall there, and we're at a you know in a side room. And um, we're talking about what we, you know, what the pictures we wanted at the museum. And eventually it gets around to like, well, what's in the box? And I said, oh, it's Edward Drinker Cope. And what I didn't realize, like bringing a bone hunter to bone hunters was like bringing, you know, you know, Elvis to the Hard Rock Cafe. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like uh, the Holy Grail. Yeah, it was like the whole. They, 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 were, they were calling up, you know, departments heads and say, "You got to oh come God. down here. You got to see this." You know, Edward so everybody gets filmed with him, and so oh. you know, so we we carried him around for like a uh, a year and a half, and you know, he was in the van with us because I, I I wanted to photograph, get all, collect all these artifacts, and then film mm. him somewhere. Um, you know, all these these pieces of the you know to illustrate the great bone wars and i remember i was out in, mm -hmm. in utah with a guy that was looking for a utah raptor paleontologist and i said well you know we're, we're digging dinosaurs it's called the utah raptor i said well um do you have any favorite paleontologist how's your favorite paleontologist and he says uh edward drinker cope and i said would you like to meet him he's in the van <laughs> What did he say? <laughs> I don't remember what he said, but every, everybody's, everybody's pretty shocked. And I went to, I remember I went to Ghost Ranch. And oh. this is, this is uh, 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 George O'Keefe's ranch, Ghost Ranch. She had, she had a, mm. there's a, they had a big collection of dinosaurs that all died together at the, you know, probably in a flood, little, these little tiny uh, raptors. And I'm, I remember I'm driving out to the with the paleontologist. I interviewed her at the at the, the museum, and we get to the end of the trailhead, and she, you know, I'm get, get, I'm, at this point, I'm by myself. And I said, uh, she says, "Oh, you better like lock up your van and take anything out valuable because we get you know a lot of people break in and at the end of the trailhead." So, so I got all my heavy gear. I said, "Do you mind taking the box?" And so we're going, so we're walking up to this like you know through the ravines up to this up to the site. And I go, listen, I, I really don't know much about your work. Uh, Georgia O'Keeffe's carrying the box? No, no, we're at, the, we're at her ranch. This is before she oh. already died. She died, but oh, we're okay. at, I'm with, I'm with the paleontologist. Okay. I'm with the paleontologist. Okay, I was like. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry. Probably oh, no. missed a step there. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I said, uh, she said, I said, I don't know much about your work. Tell me about what you do. And she said, well, I, I, actually, I'm not really a paleontologist as much as I am. My work has been done with modern bones, modern syphilitic bones. Well, no way. Yeah, and then, so yeah, let's, let's talk about working in a mysterious way. And I go, so well, so who discovered the site? And she she mentioned this guy. I think his name was uh, Baldwin. And I said, well, who do you work for? And he goes, oh, Edward Drinker Cope. Now she's 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 carrying his head. 
and she never met me before, so I don't want like you, you can imagine like no, I'm afraid to say like you know we're on the middle of nowhere. It's like he had this head. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many situations. So so okay, now this this is interesting. So, so I eventually showed it to her, and she's like, "Where do you get this?" And I said, well, she, she's Are you so sure? she, she, she so. When it came came up to syphilis, that's when I asked her. I said, "Can you tell oh. me if my friend has syphilis?" And she goes, "Oh yeah, I can see behind the ears here. Like, Where'd you get this? Who is this?" Oh. You drink your coke. Anyway, so so I, this is funny. Like about you know, then I came. I wasn't living in Boulder then, but I came uh, to, to interview Dr. Robert Bacher, who's probably one of the most famous dinosaur hunters in the world. His you know a lot of his work between um, Jack Horner and him was really the um, the grounds for um, Edward Crichton doing Jurassic Park. Oh wow! But, so I'm at the North Boulder Cafe with uh, with Bob Bacher, and we're having breakfast. And uh, I remember I, I was asking him because he was like he's really uh, he he wrote a book called Dinosaur Heresies, and he's really uh, an interesting guy. He he thought sort of thought like. You know, I thought, well, here's the one person that really could understand it because you can really tell us, you know, how do you tell a story that's interesting about dinosaurs and make it interesting, exciting? And, mm-hmm. and I go, Bob, what kind of pictures should I do for the story? And he says, well, they should be counterintuitive. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, not all dinosaurs are what you think they are. Some are, also, are all so small that they could, you know, fit in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, who has that? Where can I find that? And he, Pulls this little vial of bones out of his like his like uh, like his fishing jacket, you know, and he has this little little black bones in a vial, little tiny jaw, little tiny. Jaw. God, that's incredible! What do you call that? He said, "Drinker," and I go, "Why?" He said, "Well, after Edward Drinker Coke, have you heard of him?" And you know, and, and he's sitting between us. <laughs> <laughs> so you were in a restaurant in Boulder, North Boulder with, Cafe, with the. You tell the year and a half. This reminds me, I can't remember the name of the movie where the dead guy. Einstein's brain. Einstein's brain. It was the, it was, it was like a B movie. I'm sure it's like the dead guy and they travel with him and the guy died. I can't remember, but it's like, I don't know. It, just, it was a little bit like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what did he say when you, did you tell him? Oh yeah. Yeah, I did. That, of course I did. You know, there's a picture of, uh, you know, of the skull. You know, oh, of, of, uh, sitting on the table. Oh, um, in the restaurant, you pulled out the skull. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, because we, you know, back then, you know, we, you know, we would take <laughs> would take them on the planes with us too. So you'd like go through the X-rays, and of course, people <laughs> it'd be like the, the, you know, the it wasn't TSA back then, but the, the guy would be like, you know, the guy would be like looking at the, the bag go through and look at the screen, look at me, like, is that what I think it is? <laughs> <laughs> people like that because they're going to think you're like some type of murderer or something i mean that would be my yeah. my first yeah. inclination yeah so yeah well I, I just explained you know i had the paperwork oh. you know i, oh, I had, okay. had, my, had my library card <laughs> excuse me oh no problem oh my gosh i've my cheeks hurt <laughs> <laughs> these are the best stories I've been doing this podcast for three years, and by far, <laughs> these are the best. Yeah. Oh my goodness, this was a great one. I'm so glad. It was, I found these on that um, your website, thesahoyas.com. I don't oh, know if yeah. it's been updated in a while. No. Um, but it had pictures of Donald Trump when he was younger. And oh boy. 
really interesting um photos yeah. i mean just incredible photos i was like oh my goodness <laughs> this is great yeah before, uh, I, had, I had an interesting life even before we started filming yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was it was uh it was uh the best thing i've ever done oh my gosh i can't imagine what that would be like because you know i my daughter's best friend from college is also she went to photojournalism and she's mm -hmm. like always wants to work for national geographic so it's still one of those you know those highlights um kind of the the uh, what was it? Uh, Walter Mini. Um, oh, it was a movie where he's working for National Geographic or one of oh, the yeah. just, um, it's just, uh, it, you know, and when I was a kid, um, I mean, this is why I'll be 50 next year. So I, I, you know, as you get to this age, you know, 60s, not looking so old. 70s, definitely. You're like, yeah, Tell you're so young. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, but at the National Geographic, the kids version, my grandmother would buy that for me. And I just love that so much. Like I would look so forward to seeing that. Like she buy those books with the colors of the fish, and it was just so incredible. I mean, the work was so important to bring that to someone who I grew up in the desert in New Mexico. So I mean, yeah. Well, every I man, that's uh, a lot of people learn about life from that that magazine back when it was, you know, a little bit more rare than it was today to travel around. Remember the I was, a, I was working on a story on the sense of smell with. Uh, writer by the name of Boyd Gibbons who did a story on Sunset Boulevard in LA and he was interviewing Hugh Hefner for the this article and um, you know Boyd said to Hugh Hefner said well you know I, what I everything I learned about you know, human anatomy female anatomy when I was a kid I learned from your your magazine and <laughs> Hugh said everything I learned about female anatomy I learned about from, from your magazine because back then they used to you know it used to be okay to show you know American, yeah, back yeah. then, <laughs> a different era. <laughs> yes, it was for sure. Oh my goodness. Well, I, I, we've covered so much, and you're good. I mean, we could, I could talk about your incredible life for hours and hours, but if there's one last <clears throat> bit of advice, <clears throat> excuse me, I laugh too hard now that I can't speak. Hold on. Tea there. Um, one bit of advice that you would say. You know, this is really very important. That's a take-home message of all the amazing things we spoke about today. What would that be for someone? Oh boy! I mean, I don't know. Every everything that you do matters. You know, and, and especially about what, you know, if you want to change the world, change what's on your plate. If you're not plant-based already, you know, mm -hmm. start going that that direction. You know, you know, get the right amount of you know protein and nutrients. It's easy to do on a plant-based diet, but you know, you'll feel better. You know, you'll, mm -hmm. you'll look better. You'll, you'll live longer. You know, when, you know, when I was, well, I don't know, it's just, I, do it for yourself, do it for your kids, you know, do it for the planet, do it for other animals. There's, there's, there's like, there's a gazillion reasons to become more plant-based and, you know, um, living longer and healthier is probably, you know, I don't know what else could be better than that is if you can give somebody, you know, uh, a chance of being the healthiest version of themselves that they can be. Right. You know, there's always those, you hear those commercials for the pharmaceuticals, like results aren't typical, or, you know, there's always these side effects that they list death included. And I always, <laughs> I always tell my patients, like, you know, I tell them these incredible stories of coming off insulin in seven days and asthma and hundreds of pounds of weight loss in a year. <clears throat> I said, these results are typical and your life could be different and your, your future just yeah. a little change and it's a whole different trajectory. So I think it's very important and what you speak is truth. So absolutely. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Louie, for 
an, very entertaining and lovely uh, uh, well, conversation. Well, I, I do want to say there's just a little little pimp for my yes, little pimp for my please, organization here. Please, is if is no, if yes. anybody out there, you know, we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, if anybody ever wants to support what we do, you know, we're always looking for executive producers or somebody that wants to donate. You know, go to uh, Oceanic Preservation Society. It's a nonprofit organization. Your contributions are tax deductible. So. OPSociety.org, and I'll make sure and put all your links there. And is it still based in Boulder? No, we're, um, we're actually based in uh, California now. In Sausalito? Um, in Sausalito. I'm, I'm in Sausalito. You can sort of see the ocean out oh, the back I window. There. I saw yeah, there. Beautiful. Yeah. It's raining here. It's cold. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. But I no, can see Longspeak. But we work up at uh, Skywalker Ranch, Lucas's Skywalker oh, okay. Ranch. So we have a, wow. a we have a little bungalow up there where we do our, our production. So it's a nice little idyllic scene that we have going on here. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful area. Um, <clears throat> well, you've lived in some amazing places then, Boulder and. Arizona. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love it. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, and uh, thanks everyone for listening.